Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, Director of Practice Development at Real Self. The state of Utah is sort of notorious, and this comes up in Real Self data a lot, for people pretending that they're not having cosmetic procedures. My guest for this show is Real Self verified facial plastic surgeon P. Daniel Ward, who's known around Salt Lake City as the blue collar plastic surgeon. I sat down with him to find out why people in Utah are so hesitant to admit they're seeing an aesthetic professional. Dr. Ward has over 28,000 followers on Instagram, and I also uncovered the secret weapon that helped him get there and learned how Instagram has changed the demographics of who's coming into the practice. Today's episode of the Real Self University podcast is with our special guest, Dr. Daniel Ward. Do you drop the P when you introduce yourself? Yeah. Online, it says Dr. P. Daniel Ward. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, yeah, nobody calls you P? No, no. So, yeah, my, my, my dad's name is Preston. My first name is Preston, but they decided to curse me by calling me by my middle name. They didn't call name. you JR. <laughs> right, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Ward, you're in Utah. Tell us a little bit about your practice and what stage you're at in your career and, and kind of what's going on in your world right now. I'm a facial plastic surgeon in Salt Lake City. My practice is primarily rhinoplasty, facelift, hair transplant, blepharoplasty, brow lift, as well as injectables. I own um, a chain of medical spas that uh, we started uh, just under uh, three years ago. I'm in my 10th year of practice. Um, for six of those, I guess a little for six of those years, I was a full-time faculty member at the University of Utah. I still am a faculty member, but I'm adjunct and left about three years ago to start my own practice. Utah is sort of notorious, and this comes up in real self-data a lot, for people pretending that they're not having cosmetic procedures. Would you say that those news stories are accurate and that that's what's actually happening in Utah? What's it like there? Yeah, I, th I think that's certainly true, that people, they want to look good. They want to look their best, but they don't necessarily want to advertise how they, <laughs> they look good. Or And it's almost like a, it's not necessarily that they, um, I don't know, are, are embarrassed about the treatment, but it's almost kind of a like an indulgence they don't want to admit to her. You know, it's almost different than than a vanity sort of thing that they're worried about. coming from a place of being frugal? Yeah, I think it's that. But then there's also kind of like a, kind of a humility part of it. Like, oh, I don't want to spend this money on myself or kind of like a humbleness sort of aspect to it as well. Is there anything about that sort of mentality that makes it tricky to market to that patient? Um, no, I mean, I think we probably have, found our niche, you know, with that in the sense of, you know, that, that we kind of want natural results and that we don't want you to look like you've had something different done or, you know, obvious done, which, which frankly, I think is a, um, I'm grateful to have that niche for marketing because I think that's kind of the result that we as surgeons kind of want to go for. And it's certainly results that are um, a little bit safer. You know, if we try to go for these really extreme results, that's when in many cases, the, the risk of the, of the procedure goes up and complications go up and it becomes more risky. Have you seen the changes in social media recently kind of impact the way people are coming in to see you and talk about things? So do you mean that, what, what changes do you mean just in terms of? Both that Instagram's exploded so much, but also the content that we're seeing on Instagram is much more open about cosmetic treatments than mm -hmm. it ever has been in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Instagram in particular has really changed the marketing and, and, the, and the population that we market to. For a while, I think that we 
you know, we have this stereotype of kind of like the younger patient, you know, the, like the 22-year-old who wants her lips injected and she finds, finds out about her surgeon on Instagram or she wants her nose done or, or, or whatever. But I think it's, it's been really educational for people to kind of see how things are done. But I also think that it's been um, a little bit kind of shocking for some people to see. And, and maybe, you know, you of course can't show everything that's done. You show the procedure, everything looks great, but it's not like you're showing the whole recovery and the whole, you know, process that the patient has to go through. But it certainly changed our, our, our marketing. We get a decent number of patients that have found us on social media, particularly Instagram. You have about 28,000 followers on Instagram now. Mm-hmm. Are you doing all of that yourself? Yeah, we, we usually, it's either done by me or one of our staff members. We don't have an outside company that does it. It's all done internally. How did you get to 28,000? Was that strategic? <laughs> was there something so, that happened? <laughs> about, I don't know, four years ago, we had a big increase. And it was because my daughter, who's now 22, I asked her to like help me with it. And so she just started liking people. And she's kind of like one of the early, and I hear about this all the time now, about how you need to increase engagement and engage with other people. She did that for me one summer while she was out of school. And it kind of, that gave us kind of like a push and then it just grew from then. Is she available for hire? <laughs> <laughs> she works at a bank now, so um, I think she she's do their happier. social media? <laughs> she should. <laughs> that was lucky. It's much harder to get followers now than it was a couple of years ago. And Instagram's really cracked down and changed the algorithm so that it's it's not as easy as it used to be. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, recently. That just happened in early June, I think. Oh, really? It, it changed. Oh, cool. And they're not exposing your content to people who don't already follow you almost mm. at all. Oh, and really? A lot of people are saying that's because they want to try to get your money. You know, Facebook mm. owns Instagram and they're trying to monetize, so. Oh, that probably makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, I, you know, I think that... Um, you know, people were, I think, buying followers and stuff like that. And that's like, I don't know really what that accomplishes in the sense of, you know, you buy a follower in Brazil or something like that. How does that help your practice in Salt Lake City? It doesn't. And you're way too pragmatic because the point of buying followers is usually to get a vanity metric or boost your own ego. Oh, uh, gotcha. So that's probably why it didn't occur to you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you decide what you're going to post on Instagram? Is it a spur of the moment thing uh, or typically do you plan it, is. it out? I mean, I, for, for, for a while I would do, I was very, like when, the, during the time period that I had my daughter helping, it was very planned out. And I had like this pattern where I was like, okay, I'm going to do a quote one day, I'm going to do a personal thing one day, and then I'm going to do something with work another day. And um, that was kind of useful for me because like, okay, I need to start thinking about a quote or finding, you know, oh, I like this quote, I'm going to use this, or this is a fun family picture, I'm going to put this on, or, oh, here's a, a nice before and after I'm going to use. But now it's, I don't know, I've just gotten a little bit lazy, I guess, or a little less disciplined. Was and part of why you enjoyed it is that you were doing it with your daughter? I think so. I mean, I think it was kind of, you know, kind of a fun family thing. And I actually kind of like, I think some people probably disagree with this, but I kind of liked to kind of tie in the the work and the family stuff. Cause I think it's kind of more of a genuine representation of kind of, of me and how I do things. You know, this is me. Mm-hmm. You know, I like these quotes. I like this, you know, family picture. And I like this, you know, I'm a surgeon as well. So it's kind of fun for that. I noticed a lot of authenticity in your Instagram. And I, I wonder if you think that's part of your overall brand and, and how do you approach your marketing and what do you think your brand is as a practice? Yeah. So thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, that it is, um, 
maybe heartfelt, and that's kind of comes across. And that's, that actually is one reason I like to do it kind of spontaneously is because I have a tendency to just not post if I'm not feeling it, you know, which maybe I need to kind of keep producing content. I need to be better about that. But, you know, kind of posting when you feel like seems to help with that. You know, I kind of just sometimes describe myself as as like the, the blue collar facial plastic surgeon in the sense of I don't feel particularly fancy. I don't want to be particularly fancy. And I don't know if our patients really necessarily want or care that their surgeons fancy. I think if they have an issue, they just kind of want it fixed. And um, that's what I hope that I can do. And I hope that I can do that in a way that relates to them and that they know that I am going to care about their problem or their issue or their complication or whatever it might be. And we're going to work to take care of it and get them through that process. Do you find that that feeling of being homey or not fancy is pulled through in the patient reviews and the feedback you get from your patients? I think so. I mean, I think there's kind of a, maybe a little bit of a connection that that kind of happens. And at least I hope that that, that lets people know that, that we really do sincerely care about them and, and want them to be happy. And, and part of this is kind of like, I, you know, I, it's kind of the way that I feel like I am. And it just is easier to be authentic rather than try to pretend that I'm somebody that, I, that I'm not. It is definitely easier. And it makes marketing a lot easier, too, oh. <laughs> in general. Does your wife work in the practice with you? Yeah, she is. You know, like we, we, I, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of different ways to describe a spouse working in in, in the business, but like you know the the best and the cheapest labor <laughs> that you'll that you'll ever have because they care so much about it and they want it to succeed, but they do it pretty cheap in many cases without getting paid at all. So yeah, she she is um, very involved, and I really appreciate it because she's she's like super business savvy very smart, you know, just a great source of wisdom and advice for me. She's always, you know, reading some business book or leadership book. And it's, it's very inspiring to me because that is not a strength of mine. I'm just kind of like surgeon. I read a lot of books, <laughs> study, do a lot of history reading, but she's like about the leadership and the business aspects. It's really cool. So is she the mastermind behind the medical spas? Um, to, to a large part. I mean, when I decided to leave the university, it's primarily because I just wanted to have my own practice and wanted to tie in the medical spas with it because I felt like kind of offering that comprehensive care would be uh, beneficial. But I mean, she's somebody that, you know, that that likes the, these sorts of treatments. So she's in a way kind of a great um, person to talk to or to run ideas past because she's a consumer and we can kind of field test things on her. But, but also just kind of some of the vision things, you know, like me, I, I wouldn't necessarily have an opinion on, you know, how a facial was performed or the steps involved with a hydrofacial, but she really does. Just knowing like, okay, if we add these extra three steps, it's going to really, it doesn't really add that much work to the process or it doesn't cost us that, that much money, but it really creates kind of a better experience, which is totally something that I wanted to do. So she's in many ways helps with those details that maybe I would just would just be so over my head. Have you had any surprises in the process of standing those medical spas up that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I mean, there have been, where do I start? <laughs> you know, it's like you learn so much with in, in that process. Um, I would say the biggest thing that, that I've learned is, and this almost gets kind of to like a philosophical sort of thing for me, is just learning about myself, about my own strengths and weaknesses and interacting with other people. Sometimes as a surgeon, you're just kind of on your own and you're just kind of working, you know, by yourself. But, but you know, having to work as a team, being a leader of a team, you know, the hardest part of this sort of process for us um, and for me particularly has been the people, which has also been by far the best part. 
Like the people are so amazing and it's been so fun and rewarding to get to know different people, different personalities and work with them and just see how they come together as a team and make things grow. It's really inspiring. Have you had to learn how to hire people and find the right kind of staff? Is there any learnings you can share with us in that area? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that's a, I think that's a universal question that nobody ever has the the perfect answer to. I'm I'm not heavily involved in the hiring process. I think that you know having kind of the the team leads that are in charge of that is helpful. And I I don't want to kind of be in a situation where where I do something that I've had a tendency to do, which is micromanage uh, processes. So I, I'm not intimately involved in those. But by the time that I usually talk to a, a candidate, if they want me to talk to them. I kind of want to make sure that we're a good fit for them. You know, I think that the team leads have found out that this person is a good fit for us on make sure that we're a good fit for them. And so I, you know, I find myself, I think sometimes maybe talking about some of the the challenges that I maybe anticipate with their job and saying, hey, I just want to make sure that this is something you're up for so that we don't have any surprises. So when you're not operating, what are you spending your time doing during the day? So I, I do roughly, I mean, on a week-to-week basis, I'm doing about 50% clinic, 50% operating room, so seeing patients. I do uh, trainings for injectables, and so that's kind of a fun thing that I enjoy. We have a little bit of a kind of a side hustle, if you will, in um, real estate, so kind of some residential and a little bit of commercial real estate that kind of occupies some time. But the other thing that we enjoy doing just for kind of fun is just being outside. Living in Utah is kind of fun because we've got the mountains right there. And so whether it's a lake or skiing or hiking, we kind of spend our time doing that. So one of my favorite questions to ask doctors is, you can only do so much in a day, right? Where do you hack your schedule so that you can make time for the things that you like? Like What, what have you either given up or figured out how to eliminate so that you can make the most of the 12 hours or the 16 hours that you have every day that every other human has. <laughs> so still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I tend to be like a, just a super early riser. Like I typically wake up at about 3.30 and then I'll just kind of lay in bed for 30 minutes or so or, lo- or longer in many cases. I'll read, I'll catch up on email. Typically I like to, to get up and, and take the dog out and get outside for a little bit. And so my, I guess my, my simple answer is just like, I, I do that in the morning. Um, but otherwise, I'm still trying to figure that out. It's hard for me to know and try to find balance in terms of, you know, kind of wellness and taking care of yourself with all the kind of the other demands that you've kind of placed on yourself. Like, you know, you only have yourself to blame for it. It's a lot of trade-offs. Have you always been an early riser or did you just yeah. decide one day to be an early riser? <laughs> you know, I, um, I've always liked to be up early like I was... I don't know why, but even as a kid, I like to wake up early. And um, I married one of those weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> I still kind of like it. I don't know why, but um, no, I used to. I've never had a hard time getting up. But three thirty is a little bit of an extreme. That's I've been I don't know three or four years that I've been kind of waking up early. <laughs> Sometimes it's the it's the best time of the day to just think. For me, it is. I mean, I'm always surprised by how, especially when as a med student, I was on this really tough rotation. Um, I had to get up. I had to get up at around three thirty to to get ready, and then you know get to the hospital and I'd pre round. And I was always surprised by that. You know, the hours like I don't know four a.m. to seven a.m. Those three hours seems like a longer period of time than like seven p.m. to ten p.m. Mm-hmm. Still three hours, but for some reason those three hours seem to last longer. They in the are morning. way longer. I totally agree. <laughs> I noticed that you're passionate about explaining training to the public 
know, you, you can't ever know who reads your website, but I noticed that you took extra care to educate your reader about what the training means to be a facial plastic surgeon and the differences. And there's been a lot of data, one very notable study that concluded people will never understand credentials. And I, I don't think that's wrong. I think most people never will because it, it's such a huge hurdle to actually sort through all that information. And, and I think doctors forget sometimes that people don't know what it means that you did a fellowship or mm-hmm. that your residency was at this place. It's, it's completely like Chinese to us. We mm-hmm. don't know. So Real Self introduced the verified badge earlier this summer, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on the verified badge toward solving that really challenging problem for patients. I personally love it. I know that a lot, there's a lot of people that, that maybe aren't happy with it. I think it's great. I, th- I think it's an amazing way for the consumer to, to kind of cut to the chase. Because I think that's, you know, actually, this may be a little bit of a weird analogy, but when I was in college, I remember this uh, political science professor saying that the issue with our, with how, like the American system is that we have too many choices and we don't know who to vote for or what to do. So that's why we have like these two parties because we, you know, roughly you pick one that kind of goes with you and you, whatever. <laughs> I kind of feel like it's the same sort of thing with board certification. Like we've got so many choices. It's so confusing. How can any of us keep up on it all unless we're like super involved in it? And so I, I love the way that, you know, to me, the verified thing just kind of says like, okay, this is, this person has, for whatever it's worth, has gone through this process. The real self says they're verified. And I think that's a huge service to the consumer, you know, versus, you know, some other like, you know, like a review site or something like that, or, you know, other things that are out there on the internet that anybody could be reviewed for anything or, you know, say that they do this or that and get reviews on it. And it's super confusing to the consumer. So I think without these sorts of, like the more ways that we, as, you know, what I would consider the core cosmetic plastic surgery specialties can have to to verify our training and background, then I think that's powerful for the consumer. Prior to the verified badge, I always felt like the only way a consumer could really figure out if something was true or if a doctor was who they said they were was through before and after photos. And reviews too, like they, they go hand in hand, but photos are the, the most obvious and tangible proof that we have. But for face patients... It's very challenging to get people to agree to share their photos. Have you come up with any secrets or <laughs> secret ways of getting them to give permission or a special way that you ask? How, how do you think about that? You know, I, I feel that kind of strain too, because it is hard. You know, people don't necessarily want to share. They've had their nose done or their chin or, or whatever it can be. And again, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with, like sometimes people are just too, they don't want people to know that they're vain or whatever. The way that I typically ask is I, I say, so we of course have a, you know, the the written consent form that, that we have them sign whenever they get photos taken. As part of that, it, it talks about the fact that they, you know, we'd like to be able to use use these photos on, you know, kind of whatever, you know, website that we see fit. But then I like to to just ask them in person. Say, hey, and I, and I typically kind of have like a little script in my mind. I say, hey, before I even say this, I want you to know it's it's totally okay to say no, but would you be comfortable with us using your before and after photos? And I don't know, it seems to work. There's occasionally patients will say like, oh, you know, I'm a little nervous. But I think that kind of just personally asking them, which is a little bit of a pain and I don't want to have to do it. But I found that if I don't ask, number one, I feel, I don't know, I just feel better, more comfortable knowing that they've given me verbal 
permission. It's not just like some, you know, staff member who's decided to post these before and afters. It just makes me feel more comfortable. And I think they kind of appreciate that as well. I do think you personally asking is far more effective than a staff member doing it. Do you break your consent down into categories like social media, in the office only, or not at all? Or is it just one big consent? It's just one big consent. And then there's like a a bottom section of it that allows them to opt out. Like if they want to opt out of using their photos, then they, they, you know, sign and initial that. But it says, you know, the other one says like, we will use these photos for this. You give us permission to do it. If you want to opt out, you know, opt out below by signing this. At what point in the process of the patient signing this paperwork, is it included like in their pre-op or where does it happen? Is it a standalone event? How do you? We prefer them to do it like whenever there's a photo taken at all. So Every um, photo. Right. So with every photo, we... um, we're supposed to be getting this thing signed. Mm-hmm. And so we might have, you know, multiple of these. But and part of that is, I just want to, number one, I want to make sure that we actually have the consent on file. But number two, I want to make sure that the patient has a chance to, you know, they might have had like three sets of pictures. I'm going to sign this thing four or five times, but I want to make sure they've had a chance to read it and they're familiar with it. I just feel like that kind of, it just makes me sleep a little bit better at night, feel more comfortable. I think that's really smart at the at the moment of the photo. So the patient's not coming back later. Six months later and saying, I don't remember signing that, you know, it's yeah. much more memorable. That's my thought. <laughs> this is more memorable. How do you manage the system? What system do you use to manage the before and after photos? So we just use file folders. We um, you know, just have, it's nothing complicated. It's a little bit of a pain in the sense of we don't have, it's not like bookmarked by the procedure. So if I'm kind of putting a procedure together, it's have to, it's kind of a process to, to find out the photos to use for that for a presentation, for example, if I'm putting that together. But that's how we do it. I also noticed on your website that you're offering facial feminization procedures. Mm-hmm. And that seems to have just reached widespread acceptance just in the last year. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe a little further back, but not much. And I, I'm curious how that sort of Utah culture fits with that and, and how people are responding to your offering that now? You know, as, as, as far as I know, there hasn't been anybody who's, I don't know, had any positive or, or negative responses to it. Well I, 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 well, I hope they've had positive responses. But, you know, for of course, the transgender population is super happy that there's someone who has interest in doing this and, you know, wants to do it and has, you know, kind of the the level of interest that they want to be good at it, um, not just dabble in it. So they like that. But um, I, I think that the as far as I know, the rest of the population, at least that I see, has hasn't had any objections or any kind of weird sort of things about that. But it's it's very rewarding to to you know these patients that are super miserable and have had all sorts of difficulties in life, just kind of feeling uncomfortable in their own skin to kind of remove a little bit of cartilage from the Adam's apple area or make the nose a little bit more feminine. That's primarily what I do is is male to female, just because that's kind of what we typically do with facial sort of work. But they just feel so happy. It's, and, that's, and that's really kind of, you know, I think why most of us choose this field is to try to make people happy. And it's fun. It's rewarding. Do those patients ever let you share their before and after photos? Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah. Yeah, they do. <laughs> it's um, something that at different times, different patients may feel more or less comfortable with it. You know, because, you know, that for example, there may be, say we're talking about a male to female uh, transgender patient, they may be kind of in the process of doing this, but they not, may not feel comfortable letting the public know at that point. So, of course, we'd wait until, you know, they, they felt comfortable with it. But in general, they're, they're actually very happy 
to do it. And they, um, you know, there's so many things that we don't understand about how with human development and genetics and all that stuff, how that works. And I think they're just really happy that, to be able to have that change and live their life. Especially in a place that's safe, mm-hmm. you know, where they can really get the very best surgeon that's available to them. That's really great. Yeah, it's cool. It's fun to do. So we ask everyone on this podcast the same question at the end, which is, what is your superpower? <laughs> Invisibility. I really don't know what to say. <laughs> um, superpower. I don't think I have any superpowers. Everybody um, has one. I don't know. Maybe just kind of non-determination or it's a little bit of a, of a cliche, but grit maybe. Just kind of perseverance and persistence. I, can I see guess that. just kind of, you know, keeping going and maybe being not smart enough to know when to stop and just to keep going. I, I don't know if that's a superpower or not, but I think that's it is, you know, being, being willing to work hard and um, able to work hard to kind of accomplish your goals and kind of reach further than what you thought you could reach. That's a good one. <laughs> thanks for sharing your stories with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And the mission of Real Self University is to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of this podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive preferred rates. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email me at university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.